Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll ask the question, what is the goal of the Republicans' Senate health care bill? Sincerely, why do Republicans think it's a good thing to cut the health insurance of 22 million people? We'll ask Zoe Carpenter. Also, Trump's travel ban. The Supreme Court agreed on Monday to hear arguments about the ban's constitutionality. For an analysis, we'll turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, and he's also national legal director of the ACLU. First up, Naomi Klein. Her last book, This Changes Everything, was an instant New York Times bestseller, and it's being translated into over 25 languages. Her first book, of course, was No Logo in 2000. It changed the lives of many of us. Among the many amazing things about her, she was invited to speak at the Vatican to help launch Pope Francis's historic encyclical on ecology. She writes for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Guardian, the London Review, the Intercept, and the Nation. And she's a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute. Her new book is No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be with you, John. We have some big questions today. How did we get to this political moment? How can we change things to get a really better future? We all thought Hillary was going to win. We all thought at this point we would be fighting Clintonism and corporate liberalism. We were wrong. We were shocked at how wrong we were after November 8th. And then we were shocked all over again after January 20th with that uh, blizzard of executive orders being shocked is something you've thought about for a long time. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a theme of my work of how um, moments when the place we thought we lived in suddenly seems very different um, and we lose our footing are moments when, when we can lose a lot. We, and historically, when a lot of rights have been lost, when a lot of uh, wealth has been lost from the public to the private. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, you know, I struggle. I don't think there is a we that is that 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 is accurate when we say we were shocked, right? Because there were people who were not shocked, um, who who did see it coming, uh, who were more in touch um, with that that deep deep vein of of, of racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Um, and 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 knew just how deep it was um and and you know even if they saw the same polls we did um were less comfortable than than so many white progressives and liberals who thought for sure this wouldn't happen you know of course in a lot of ways what trump has been doing is not that shocking at all. It's kind of the standard Republican playbook, uh, cutting taxes, trying to repeal Obamacare. Even even pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord is something probably any Republican president would have done. It's in the Republican platform. Trump's personality is shocking. But underneath, what he's doing is more, you know, naked and, and bold, but is is he really any more shocking than the mainstream Republicans? 
so-called mainstream Republicans are an extraordinarily radical bunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this has been true for decades, um, but it's become, you know, increasingly so. And <clears throat> there is a, a, an unmooring from reality that has to do with climate change where our physical reality is in such profound conflict with the ideological project at the heart of what now calls itself conservatism, though it isn't conservative, that, that, that now Republicans have to deny physical reality in order to hold on to their ideology. But this is not about Trump. I mean, this was true. This has certainly been true, you know, throughout the Obama years. It was, it was different before. I mean, you think about uh, the fact that you know, even the Bush administration didn't overtly deny climate change in the same way that we, you know, calling it a hoax and so on. They just ignored it. You know, um, there were some deniers within the administration. But McCain, you know, ran a campaign saying he would introduce, you know, a price on carbon cap and trade. Mm-hmm. So there has been a gradual radicalization that has to do, I think, a lot of it has to do with a conflict with physical reality. You say in your book that Every time we say the word Trump, even when we're saying it in a negative light, as we are right now, we're doing his marketing for him. That is depressing. It is depressing. And, and in retrospect, I wish I had just sort of substituted the word Trump throughout the book for something else. <laughs> but but, it, but it, we are, because part of the Trump show involves the people attacking Trump. Right. I mean, this is he uses the formula of another fake reality entertainment genre, professional wrestling. And professional wrestling needs villains, um, needs people who the crowd turns on in booze. And that's us, you know, <laughs> what we're doing right now. The doubters, the haters, <laughs> the, the people who, who, who insist that there is something called reality. Um, and, and so we, we are in, in, the, in the show. And we need to find a way to change the channel. We need to to find a way to turn it off. And, and, you know, one of the things that worries me is some idea that the way to beat Trump is to come up with a better brand that, you know, a bigger billionaire celebrity to do battle with him on on his own turf. And, And I actually think the only thing that can pierce this is a political project that is offering people such tangible and meaningful improvements to their daily life. Not a show about bringing back the jobs, but actually a 21st century jobs plan that is about meeting the crisis of climate change and and and, and making sure that the jobs created are unionized jobs uh, that pay a middle class wage, which unfortunately has not been enough of the green jobs discourse, right? And, 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 and fighting for single-payer universal health care and, uh, and, and, and getting rid of tuition fees. This is the platform Jeremy Corbyn ran on, and it was really interesting how when he issued his manifesto, that changed everything in the campaign. I mean, he was so behind in the polls. And it wasn't that he suddenly became a charismatic politician and an amazing brand. It was that he put forward ideas that captured the imagination of a large part of the country, particularly young people, who felt that he was a, tr- a a guy they could trust because he's not a brand or a celebrity. I mean, it was his reality that his 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 unfocused, grouped, unpolished, 
unslick reality that made young people and still makes young people and so many vulnerable people trust him in the face of so many hyper-produced mm-hmm. <laughs> politicians, that in combination with the ideas and policies themselves. So I think we, you know, we are at this moment in you know, looking at what's, what's the strategy gonna be going forward. And, and there's still such a powerful hope within uh, you know, the top echelons of the Democratic Party that it is just a question of finding you know, Hillary without the baggage. To uh, change registers here, one of the most surprising things to me in your book, No Is Not Enough, is your section titled Killing the Trump Within. What is that about? You know, I, I was struck in, the, in, the, in, in my conversations with, with, with a fair number of liberals about, let's just say the sort of Clinton Democrats, that there was this deep desire to sort of present Trump and his basis just completely other. Um, that there's this narrative that there's like, there's two Americas, there's the good guys and the bad guys, right? And it's that bad America that produced Trump. But the li- liberals are entirely innocent. So that's, pr- you know, part of the reason why I, I wanted to talk about philanthrocapitalism and how the Clinton Global Initiative created the context for Trump. But, you know, I also think it's a more internal examination that's required about how the whole... Um, like logic of personal branding it's is trump is the first human fully commercialized brand to be the u.s president like that's a big deal this is not just about conflicts of interest this is an entirely new ball game where the 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 word trump the person of trump is entirely inseparable from this global commercial enterprise which is why whenever we say his name we're feeding his brand this is a new business model, and there's never been you know, a, a, a precedent for this. But this whole phenomenon of personal branding is an, is new. You know, when I wrote No Logo 17 years ago, I think I ended it going, and you know, there's some people who even think that people can be brands. You know, <laughs> it was like that was a new idea, and um, and now you know we have a we're all running our own little reality TV show from our social media feeds, you know, curating our own life for external consumption. Our organizations use all the tools of corporate branding to take ownership over campaigns and promote and fundraise. And I think particularly in this moment, all of that needs to be interrogated because the thing about the logic of branding is that it's it's the antithesis of, a, of, a, of the logic of building a broad so- social movement because brands are possessive and brands are competitive where social movements are expansive and they open their arms and they mm-hmm. want everybody. And so, so that's why I put that section in. And, and, and also just because I really do believe Trump is dystopian fiction come to life. And so all of these things that scare us about Trump, the fact that he has no attention span, that he doesn't read, you know, that he functions at this hyperactive speed that makes everybody frantic around him. I mean, that's a reflection of the direction our culture is going in. So this is why we are at this moment where it's like, do we try to compete with Trump on this sick terrain or do we try to get to a different place? Your book um, includes a call for utopian thinking, and I want to try out my utopia on you. We stop every Trump initiative. No Trump care, no tax cuts for the rich. What do you think of that as a utopia? <laughs> um, I think it's not ambitious enough. 
<laughs> because, you know, that best case scenario, we stop every one of Trump's initiatives. We end up exactly where we were before Trump arrived. And that is the ground that produced Trump. So we can't just be negative and reactive. We have to stop them, but we have to we have to do this complicated thing of, of stopping and building at the same time, of, of, of saying no and proposing the yes, right? That jujitsu. And, and, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of what's happening in California with single payer. It is the no to Trump care and the yes of single right. payer in sharp contrast to it. And, and that's what we need to be, that's what we need to be doing at every front. But more importantly, we need to be connecting the dots between all of these it, so that they're, they're not just about issues, but about a shift in values in who we are. We are not this people that is about just becoming part of that small clique of winners in the golden tower in the sky, stepping on everybody along the way. Last question. Your other books were published by big-time New York company Simon & Schuster. This one, no, is not enough. It's published by Haymarket in Chicago. How did you decide to make that switch? You know, it, it, the whole process of writing the book was very strange for me. Usually I you know, write the proposal and give it to an agent, and then the agent shows it to publishers. In this case, I really I did a lot of the, the work on it before I had a publisher in the US. And I did that because I just I couldn't decide what to do. It didn't feel right to me to publish with with a corporate publisher on this book. I wasn't happy with some of the things I was seeing. I mean, like, I think you know that Simon and Schuster was in the midst of a pretty big scandal about one of the books that they had signed. It wasn't just about that for me. But that was a reminder that there was a lack of clarity, let's just say, about how to rise to this political moment. And I actually had a, a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Jeremy Scahill, about what what we need in this political moment, right? And it was and and Jeremy made the argument that and you know he published with he publishes with corporate publishers too on some of his books, but that in this moment when so many people are joining movements for the first time, um, that we really badly need institutions, independent institutions that are committed to those movements, and we need to publish in ways to, to support to support those institutions. And and um, I've been an admirer of of Haymarket for a long time. To me, it's less about the fact that they are independent, though they are, um, and and more about the fact that they are really a movement publisher and 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 committed to the success of this moment and making the most of this moment and amplifying some amazing radical voices, including new voices who people haven't heard from. They're nonprofit. They're not making decisions based on, you know, how we're going to make the most money. So I didn't show the book to anybody else. I just yeah. I just gave the gave it to, to Haymarket. And uh, my friend Anthony Arnov, who runs Haymarket, you know, he also when we talked about it, I asked him if they'd ever had a book on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> and, um, and he said, you know, well, how are we going to know if we can do it? If people like you don't give us a chance. <laughs> and that's when I decided that we were going to try to prove that it was possible. And uh, how has that worked out? Well, 
I just I just found out uh, we just found out yesterday that No is Not Enough is debuting at number two on the New York Times bestseller list, which is as high as I've ever been. I've never been that high on the list before. So, you know, I'm really happy for the book, but I'm so happy for Haymarket and and everybody who made this possible because we did we are proving that we can do this. Um, yeah, debuting at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. No is not enough. Naomi, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. So great to see you again, John, as always. Now it's time to talk about the Senate Republican bill to repeal Obamacare. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the bill would strip 22 million people of their health insurance, 15 million of them next year. Why do Republicans consider all of this a good thing. To try to understand this, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She writes about healthcare politics and other topics for the nation, where she's assistant Washington editor. We reached her today in our nation's capital. Zoe, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, we're recording this show on Tuesday when the latest reports are the Senate will not take up this bill until after the July 4th recess. Uh, so instead of talking about kind of the micropolitics of which Republican senators might be able to be bought off by what kinds of special treatment. I want to talk about the bigger picture of what this is all about and try to find the arguments in favor of the Republican health care bill. I, I'm having some trouble with that, and, and I hope you can help. Okay, I'll do my best. Well, reporters from Vox asked eight Republican senators to describe the purpose of their health care bill, and they didn't really have answers in common. Let me tell you what a few of them said. When John McCain was asked what problems is the bill trying to solve, his answer was all of them. And when they asked him, well, can you name some, the only problem he named was getting enough senators to vote for the bill. Chuck Grassley of Iowa said the bill would, quote, bring certainty to the insurance market. Uh, he didn't explain how. Can you explain how? Well, not really. And neither could the CBO when it did its analysis of this bill. I mean, if you think about what the insurers want and, and what the markets need for stability, um, it's that there'll be enough healthy people in the pool of um, insurance enrollees to essentially support the people that aren't healthy and whose care costs a lot of money, um, and that there will be enough insurers in markets in, in the counties so that people have a choice and can choose between plans. And according to the new analysis of the Senate's bill, neither of those things will be the case. Premiums will still be very expensive, especially for low-income people, and so low-income people may choose to forego insurance, and they'll be able to do so uh, because there won't be an indiv individual mandate. Uh, meanwhile, this bill won't do anything to uh, help counties that have only one insurer or have no insurers, according to the CBO's analysis. Another Republican senator, John Boosman of Arkansas, said this was a good bill because it would lower premiums. And when asked how it would lower premiums, his answer was it would make them, quote, more affordable, close quote. Does that make sense to you? Well, it's not what the CBO found. For some people, premiums will be lower um, under the Senate bill. But what you get in exchange uh, for that are higher deductibles and other out-of-pocket costs. And some people will still pay enormously higher premiums. So, for example, a 64-year-old earning 56000 
$56,800 a year or $56,800 a year would go from paying a premium of $6,800 under Obamacare to over $20,000. Um, so think Ooh. about that as a percentage Whoa. of their income. Yeah, that's more than a third of their annual income. So obviously, uh, for certain groups of people, it's it's certainly not easing the burden of premiums. And for the people that it is lowering premiums of, uh, you, you're going to have these added costs from out-of-pocket costs and high deductibles. Now, when Obamacare was being debated, its defenders stated a perfectly clear goal, expand coverage, bring health insurance to millions of Americans who didn't have it. And the way to do that was to use government mandates and taxpayer subsidies to do that. We're trying here to understand what is the goal of Republicans with their repeal of Obamacare beyond the very, just the simple fact that they say repealing Obamacare is a good thing. Why is their version a good thing? And Mike Pence actually had what I consider maybe the most coherent explanation. This was in a tweet over the weekend. He wrote, before summer's out, we'll repeal and replace Obamacare with a system based on personal responsibility. Now, personal responsibility, of course, this is a core principle of, of uh, Republican ideology. That means, I'm going to try hard now, you are responsible for your own health and your own health insurance. If you want insurance, get a job that offers emp employer-sponsored health insurance. Uh, live a healthy lifestyle. Quit smoking. Exercise. Uh, eat a healthy diet. It's up to you. And if you're worried about your parents' health, prepare for that now. Save your money. You have a personal responsibility for your own family. And if you want to go beyond that, if you feel you have uh, 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 responsibilities to other people, then give to charity, give to churches or give to the hospitals you like or give to the nursing homes run by, I don't know, the Lutherans or whoever. And if you need help, ask your family, ask your church, ask your local charities. The rest of us the Mike Pence view, I think, is should not be required to provide medical care for you and for your family. That's your job. That's personal responsibility. Uh, that's my best effort to make the case here, the Republican argument. I wonder if you have any comment about that. It's just not realistic for the way that we live. Yes, it would be great if eating healthy and saving money were the answers um, to healthcare, but we know that health is a lot more complicated than that. Think of all the people who are born with pre-existing conditions um, or who are born with a disposition to developing a, um, a condition later. That's not a matter of choice. That's not their choice. That's not their lifestyle. Um, they may be born with a condition that's going to cost um, hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of their lifetime, and how can one person be expected to pay for that? You know, most most people develop expensive and uh, long-term health issues as they age. That is um, a fact of biology. And now that humans live longer, we have we expect more care. We expect more expensive treatment. And to say that only the people who are wealthy deserve treatment, I think, is a profoundly cruel way to look at the world. And certainly, you can argue that that's fair. But I think that's such a um, uh, it's just such a morally indefensible position, especially when there are other alternatives. It's not like that's the only option uh, by which to organize our healthcare system and organize our economy. Yeah, Chris Hayes said uh, under the Republican bill, children will get to be held personally responsible for their pediatric cancer. 
grandpa with Alzheimer's should get out of bed and get a job that provides coverage. I think you're right in calling this unrealistic. So so why do you think, Zoe Carpenter, why do you think the Republicans are, are pushing this health care bill? Well, let's take a look at what's actually in the bill and what it does. So you, you hear that this bill is supposed to fix the problems that Republicans see in Obamacare, the quote unquote collapsing markets, the fact that some counties only have one or no insurers for people on the individual exchanges. But when you look at the details of this bill, it doesn't actually solve those problems. It really just tinkers around a little bit with the formula for the subsidies and makes a few other changes, but leaves the basic structure of Obamacare in place. The real big changes that the bill makes are to Medicaid, which is a broadly popular and very effective program. It's not what people say they want changed about Obamacare, um, and certainly not the the general Medicaid program, which wasn't even part of um, Obamacare. That's a much older, you know, that's a 50-plus-year-old program. So when you look at the deep Medicaid cuts and how much money is coming from those cuts, and you, you compare them to the tax cuts that are in the bill— you see that essentially this bill is a giant cut to Medicaid to pay for um, hundreds of millions of dollars of tax cuts, largely for the wealthy and for corporations. And and so to understand the real purpose of the bill, I think that's where you look, is it's really a tax cut package and a Medicaid cut package um, that will benefit the wealthy. And it's disguised as a quote-unquote repeal of Obamacare. And I understand that the top 1% will be the primary beneficiaries of the tax cut, and the top one-tenth of 1% will be huge beneficiaries of the, of the tax cut proposed in the Senate bill and the House bill. Uh, is, have I got that right? I'm not sure about those figures exactly, but, but I can tell you that the top 2% does benefit from the majority. And um, according to an analysis by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities of the House bill, which is very similar to the Senate bill and its tax cuts and its Medicaid cuts, the 400 highest income taxpayers alone would receive $33 billion in tax cuts oh, over boy. about a decade. Oh, boy. And that's, you know... Yeah, that's a serious figure, and it's equivalent to what Alaska, Arkansas, West Virginia, and Nevada, those four states, spend on the Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you're you're giving 400 households, the highest earning households, a tax cut in exchange for cu- for cutting the health care uh, for more than three quarters of a million people. Zoe Carpenter, reader at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks for helping us today. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Now it's time to talk about Trump's travel ban and the Supreme Court. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent and national legal director of the ACLU. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the headline in the L.A. Times reads, Trump's travel ban revived by Supreme Court. Is that correct? What did the Supreme Court say about Trump's travel ban on Monday? It's correct, but uh, uh, misleading. The court agreed to hear the government's appeal of two cases, one of which uh, I'm involved in with the ACLU, both of which have struck down the travel ban as uh, unconstitutional and in violation of the immigration statutes. The court agreed to hear those cases in October. The government also asked the court in the meantime to 
stay the injunctions pending appeal. That is to lift the the injunctions that have barred the travel ban from going into effect. We argue that they should not lift that stay. The court uh, did not do what the government asked, and it didn't do what we asked. Instead, it came down with a sort of middle ground position. It said, with respect to any foreign national who has a connection to a U.S. person or entity, the uh, injunction remains in effect against the travel ban, and Trump cannot exclude any foreign national with a connection to a U.S. person or entity from entering the country. Those are, in fact, all the plaintiffs in our cases. Our cases were brought by U.S. citizens and entities that have connections to foreign nationals abroad. So everybody who was involved in the cases remains protected by the injunction. What the Supreme Court said was, as to foreign nationals who have no connections to a U.S. person, are not uh, related in any way, uh, have no job with a U.S. company, have no offer to come to a U.S. university, have no invitation to speak at a, a U.S. conference. As to those people who were actually not represented in the case, the stay is granted, the ban can go into effect. But that's a relatively small number of uh, of cases. So for the vast majority of people and all the people represented in our cases, the ban remains ineffective because of the judicial uh, decisions. Now, the ACLU and many of the states argued and the the appellate courts agreed that Trump's travel ban violated the Constitution's prohib- prohibition of discrimination based on religion because, as Trump said many times, he wanted to block Muslims from coming to the United States. Did the court uh, accept or reject the, the view that Trump targets Muslims? So the court did not uh, uh, express its view one way or the other on that question or on any of the legal questions that will ultimately be involved in the case when it is argued in October. And it was very careful to do so. And I think, uh, you know, the, the fact that it reached a per curiam decision joined uh, by you know, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kennedy, Justice Kagan, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Sotomayor was precisely because it didn't actually take a position one way or the other on the merits of the underlying case. It simply said, well, we're going to look in assessing the stay question, whether the ban should go into effect or not go into effect pending appeal. We're just going to look at the equities on both sides of the scale. When the uh, the ban uh, affects Americans and American companies and American universities, American businesses, the equities favor and joining the ban and allowing people to enter. When no Americans' interests are at stake and it's only the interests of foreign nationals who have no connections to the United States, the court said the balance is struck differently uh, and, and that's why it lifted uh, the injunction with respect to that small subset of Plaintiffs. So it, it, it reached that result, I think, in actually a, a quite a statesmanlike manner, without uh, in any way telegraphing uh, how it will come down on the merits in October. Well, the president and his lawyers have been insisting that the president has the constitutional right to protect the borders of the United States, and that's exactly what this travel ban does. Did the court agree with the president on that? Uh, no, but again, it didn't. It didn't take a position one way or the other. It, 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 I mean, if it, it look, if there were if there were five justices who believed that the 
the Trump position was correct and that the challenges were uh, insubstantial, they would have granted the stay uh, altogether. Uh, but they didn't. They actually maintained the stay uh, with respect to all those who were represented uh, in the cases before them and simply uh, uh, lifted it, lifted the, the ban or the injunction uh, with respect to people who are not before the court. So, no, they did not certainly did not accept the Trump administration's defense of the of the ban. But they also didn't declare the ban unconstitutional. They left that properly. They left that for uh, decision after there's been full briefing and argument. Now, a lot of us forgot about this, but the original argument that the administration made about this was that this was a temporary ban until, as Trump said, we figure out what is going on. Trump said he wanted to make sure that we had what he called extreme vetting of people coming from these seven uh, Muslim countries and that it was going to take a while to review the vetting procedures to make sure they were thorough enough. And when that was finished, then we would presume this temporary travel ban policy would be changed into something different. The court seems to be very much aware of the, the time frame here. So am, I, am I right about that? That's right. And, and as a result of the um, lower court decisions, the government is free to go ahead and complete its study, which it originally contemplated would take about 70 days. Uh, and, and then at the end of that 70 days, it's free to, do, to do, take whatever steps it, uh, it, it deems necessary. Um, so, it, so by the time this case gets argued in October, the, uh, the study should be completed. That was the, that's the only justification that the government has given for the ban thus far, is that they needed to put the ban in place so that they could free up resources to do the study. Well, now they're going to be able to do the study. They're going to have more than the time allotted to do the study. Uh, and, and so they will be left in October defending a ban whose only ostensible purpose has now run its course uh, and arguing to the court that it should uphold the ban by ignoring what the world knows, uh, namely that Donald Trump put this uh, ban in place in order to make good on his campaign promise uh, to ban Muslims. That's a lot to ask of a Supreme Court. Uh, and so I'm, I'm confident that we have a good shot of prevailing uh, once, the, once, uh, once the case is argued. One of the of the uh, courts accepted the argument, uh, an argument that was less than a constitutional argument, that the 1965 Immigration Reform Act eliminated national quotas as the basis of American uh, immigration policy. And since this policy is based specifically on banning people from particular nations, it, it violates the law of 19, the immigration law of 1965. Is that an issue that the, the court will be taking up also? Oh, a absolutely. Uh, so there, so there've been, there are two cases uh, that have both struck down the, uh, the travel ban at the court of appeals level. In one, the, the, the decision from the U S court of appeals for the fourth circuit, a court in Richmond, Virginia, uh, that's the case the ACLU uh, uh, handled. The, uh, along with the National Immigration Law Center. There, the court relied on constitutional grounds, uh, finding that it was an Establishment Clause violation to target Muslims for condemnation in the way that Trump did uh, by looking at his statements and looking at the, the character of the act. 
Um, but a number of judges in that case also concurred on statutory grounds, finding that the president actually lacks the authority to do this. And in, in part, that's precisely for the reason you said, that the uh, one of the statutory provisions here bars um, uh, immigration decisions based on uh, on nationality. And then there's a court of appeals decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit um, that was uh, that sat in Seattle, uh, Washington, in, in hearing the appeal. And that court um, found on statutory grounds only that the uh, the order was invalid. So the court will be considering both the constitutional establishment clause arguments and the statutory arguments that he's essentially acted beyond the authority that Congress has given him uh, in targeting people for exclusion, not based on what they do, not based on the threat they might pose, but simply based on the country from which they come, uh, countries that are uh, predominantly Muslim. And what about refugees, refugees from places like Syria? This was one of the big flashpoints that seemed to many of us especially heartless and cruel to limit the number of refugees who could come from Syria. Where where does the Supreme Court stand on that? So that also will be taken up by the court in October. The, um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the refugee, there's in addition to a 90-day ban on entry, from anyone coming from six uh, Muslim-majority countries, the uh, the order also um, banned uh, entry of any uh, refugees from anywhere in the world for 120 days, and cut the uh, and cut the cap on how many refugees could come to the United States uh, by by half. That provision was also struck down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals finding that it was beyond the president's statutory authority to uh, to do that. And that, too, will be up before the Supreme Court in uh, October. Uh, last question. What is the time frame on all this? And, and remind us again of the, the possibility that, that uh, the Trump administration will complete its review and that this will there'll never be a decision on the constitutionality of the travel ban. So the court the, the the court will hear argument in October. That's the, that's when the government asked for argument. That's when the court next gets together again. Uh, the government did not ask the court to hold a special session this summer. So uh, it'll hear argument in October, and and we'll presumably get a ruling relative. I, I would think in relatively short order after uh, the argument. Uh, uh, happens. Uh, in the meantime, the, the Trump administration will be uh, conducting its study, and uh, approximately 50 days from now, it, it ought to be, since it already has had 20 days, it ought to have completed that study. So sometime in August, it should have completed that study. And then, um, you know, then it'll be up to the government to decide what it's going to do next. It might try to, you know, make this ban permanent. It might uh, lift the ban itself. It might put something else into uh, into play, and you know, at that point, uh, you know, both sides will have to address what the consequences of that are for the lawsuit. David Cole, he's national legal director of the ACLU and the nation's legal affairs correspondent. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great to be with you, John. Bye bye. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, 
Dave talks about a new strategy to get the Washington Redskins to change their name after the recent Supreme Court case that has the Washington football team's owner celebrating. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.